Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. May the peace, mercy, and blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be upon all of you. Welcome to Islam and Life, and thank you for welcoming us into your home to have these conversations. My name is Maimuna Hussain, and we welcome you from this beautiful studio live tonight and every Thursday night at 7.30 when we host Islam and Life. I want to remind you um, that Islam and Life can also be found as a podcast after, and so if you want to recommend this to your friends if you're listening if you want to listen to it later you can also be doing that and joining in um, and listening on our podcasts and you'll see the information for that coming uh, just at the bottom there um, so as we begin we begin with Bismillahirrahmanirrahim we begin in the name of Allah subhanahu in praise of Allah subhanahu and so we will begin with some verses of the Quran وبشر الصابرين وبشر الصابرين الذين إذا أصابتهم مصيبة قالوا إنا لله وإنا إليه As you noticed, our Quranic verses uh, that uh, were recited today um, are a reminder for us to think about the tragedy that has impacted uh, Turkey, Syria, uh, and Lebanon over the past few days. And uh, we know that the death tolls are rising. And this is a call for all of us to come together as a single humanity to try to respond to this tragedy in the ways that we can, inshallah. Uh, we want to remind you that uh, MAC is engaging in response efforts. Uh, we are partnering with relief organizations and humanitarian teams uh, on the ground uh, to respond to the immediate needs. If you would like to make donations towards this, you can do so. Uh, you can go to www.macnet.ca forward slash earthquake. You can also take a look at uh, what your local chapters are doing. There are initiatives taking place across various chapters. I want to invite Brother Khalid Al-Qazaz, who is not in studio with me today and joining us online, um, to talk to us a little bit more about this. Assalamu alaikum, Brother Khalid. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salam wa rasulullah. I was here on a short uh, trip in uh, in uh, Istanbul, Turkey, and uh, I arrived the day of the uh, earthquake uh, here in the southern uh, parts of uh, Turkey and the northern parts of Syria. And uh, subhanallah, it's a national calamity and a national disaster. That is... Uh, uh, is uh, feeling uh, as they uh, 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 get try to get people out of the rubbles or help uh, uh, relocate people over uh, to the estimates are over 23 million families 
23 million individuals were affected uh, in uh, Turkey and Syria. Uh, the death toll, uh, the estimates uh, take them to close to, that they are going to get to 15 to 20,000 people. And uh, also uh, uh, the, the, the number of people and provinces and cities that were affected, uh, affected are uh, quite, quite grave. Uh, this is, of course, a calamity that is doing. It's a calamity that we face as human beings, as Muslims, as people, as, as humanity in general. We, feel we face these national natural disasters and subhanallah brings us back to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and try to see the big picture but a journey uh, that this is but a journey to the hereafter and this that that we have we are on a, a specific time and uh, instant time that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has uh, for all of us so it's a reminder for all of us about this life uh, as it uh, proportional to the afterlife it is also a reminder to uh, continue Continuously uh, be at Allah's pleasures, uh, doing what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is pleased with and stay away from what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prohibited us from and to continue being of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala throughout. No one knows when is this uh, when is this moment. But it also says that we have responsibility and an obligation. I heard this in the reflection this morning by some of the active people trying to help around that also we have an obligation to bring life back, uh, an obligation to do i'mar and grow and regrow and rebuild uh, uh, these places. We have a responsibility to do some form of takaful and solidarity people who are suffering. And everybody here is suffering. Everybody has a, either a family member or somebody who has relocated there and was affected or directly affected. But subhanAllah also the only response that we see from the Muslim ummah across the world the way from Canada to Australia uh, and uh, uh, the reactions was also at, at that at that level where people students and teachers and parents and schools community members all responded trying to do what they can collecting donations collecting supplies collecting everything and and and, and trying to send them uh, to Turkey and uh, to Turkey and Syria more so subhanallah the day I arrived they were evacuating airports because there were over a hundred thousand who still marched to the airports of uh, of Turkey, trying to and and offer their help and support uh, and their support and and many many examples of people uh, uh, in solidarity. Nothing, of course, uh, uh, compensates the loss. However, we only say Inna Lillahi wa Inna Ilaihi Rajiun that we belong to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala and we return to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala and we uh, these uh, reminders for what is worth uh, doing in this life. So inshallah, we continue our dua, we continue our support, and uh, uh, we, 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 we do as best. Brother Khaled. Um, I want to uh, take this opportunity to also think about a critical question. We've been uh, introducing critical questions uh, throughout our show each week, uh, asking you all to engage and think about what's happening around us and uh, question and think and send us your feedback. Um, and so that's usually the purpose of the critical question that we pose. And so this critical question this week uh, is around some of the other responses that have been coming forth uh, as a result of uh, what happened. And what I'm alluding to is the Charlie Hebdo cartoon that came out just after the, uh, the aftermath of the earthquake. And uh, so the question is, what would drive someone 
to draw something like the Charlie Hebdo cartoon in the aftermath of the earthquake. And Brother Khaled, I want to maybe ask you to share some thoughts and maybe about this cartoon. Yes, so so the cartoon that infuriated millions of people, starting even with uh, French uh, citizens, really uh, objected to this kind of language in such a humanitarian uh, calamity, uh, where it depicted the rebels and said basically the, the, that uh, um, uh, we do not need to send tanks. The earthquake did it, basically. So it is basically mocking this uh, suffering, unfortunately. Uh, but subhanallah, we, uh, we, we, we also need to keep this in perspective. And, and the question here basically links to us thinking about the origins and roots of racism and hate. Why would people make this distinction between human lives? And why would they be at this uh, mocking uh, uh, level at this uh, point in time? But also we remind our fellow Muslims that... Uh, the verse in the Quran, وَإِذَا خَطَبَهُمُ الْجَاهِلُونَ قَالُوا سَلَامًا In these kind of, basically these are reactions that are not worth our response because these are reactions and these are statements of ignorance that we, 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 we move past them. And we know that people of the world who carry, who respect human rights, who respect dignity, who respect uh, 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 these lives are people who, who would never support such uh, positions. And we are... Uh, in solidarity with all the efforts to uh, uh, recover from these uh, recover from these losses. So the question is, what would drive someone to draw something like the Charlie Hebdo cartoon in the aftermath of the earthquake? What are your thoughts on this? And perhaps even how do we address this? Um, I want to remind you that our show is live and we welcome your questions and uh, look to answer them with our guests and that this, is, this show is a production of the Muslim Association of Canada. So if you want to engage, you can either type in your question on the YouTube channel you can uh, call us in live through our Zoom meeting room. You can find us at 905-822-2626. That's the Zoom meeting room code. Um, so with that, we will move to tonight's episode. This evening, we will continue our special series on Islam and the family institution. Last week, we discussed the marriage institution, and we had our guests, Dr. Jasser Auda and Sister Hala Banani. If you missed it, you can definitely uh, check it out on our YouTube page, as well as the podcast, which is available. This week, we get into a conversation on homosexuality and gender identity. And we have a guest who has been engaging in this discourse uh, to have this conversation with us. And uh, we will also invite Brother Khalid to participate in the conversation uh, here at the Muslim Association of Canada. We do work around uh, building um, education platforms and uh, we have our institutions and schools nationally. And uh, Brother Khalid has been involved in some of those projects and uh, looking at this discourse. So we'll invite him to also participate in this conversation. Um, and of course, Send in your questions if you have any. And so with that, let's take a look at what our research team has put together. When discussing the topic of raising or building strong Muslim families within a pluralistic society, one will quickly realize the stark difference that exists between the Islamic worldview and that which opposes it. For the purpose of simplicity, we have broken them into two groups. 
the first being the Islamic worldview and the second being the antagonistic worldview. The Islamic worldview affirms that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created mankind to worship Him alone and commands us to use a revelation-based approach to discern truth and knowledge on what governs the permissible and the forbidden, including how to build a family. The antagonistic worldview is based on a notion that there is no absolute truths and telling us to prioritize individual rights to question everything that seems to oppose our desires and our rights. The focus when building family or partnerships is usually void of religious doctrine and focuses on desires and personal truths. Traditionally, the three monotheistic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, see the family unit as the fundamental building block of a successful society. The Islamic worldview, as it relates to building a healthy Muslim family, is one that highlights and gives potential to safeguarding individuals and their needs, as well as the overall health of society. The first condition to building a healthy Muslim family is that intimate relationships in Islam are only permissible through an Islamic marriage contract between a man and a woman, with certain stipulations. So how does one stand firm as a Muslim when others in a pluralistic society form relationships or identities based on other worldviews? Well, here are three anchors that a Muslim can use when opposing views are presented to them. The first is that a Muslim can build a firm relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through his names and his attributes. The second is that a Muslim can strive for success in the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has taught us through the Quran and the Sunnah. And the third is that a Muslim can constantly purify their heart, mind, and soul through the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A Muslim needs to consider when dealing with issues related to homosexuality and gender identity that Islam doesn't make permissible sinful feelings or desires no matter how strongly a person feels them. Feelings left unchecked can go stronger, potentially leading to a false sense of identity in a person. The bottom line for Muslims is the need to be true to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has clearly stipulated in the Qur'an. If a person does not seek clarity for a misunderstanding or confusion or they falsely legitimatize what is clearly not permissible in Islam, then this can easily impact one's faith in due time. As translated from verse 3 of Surah Al-Ma'idah, Today I have perfected your faith for you, completed my favor upon you, and chosen Islam as your way. Today, along with our guest, Sheikh Mustafa Omar, an imam, an author, and an activist, we will discuss the topic of homosexuality, gender fluidity, and their impact on our Muslim families. Jazakallah khair. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh Mustafa. Are you here with us? Okay. It's good to have you with us. So uh, as we get into this conversation, I want to maybe just uh, start with, you know, what is the importance of the family institution within the Islamic paradigm? Sure. I mean, the family uh, is a social unit. So, you know, we Islam looks at people on the one hand as individuals and on the other hand as a society and a community. So the family is one of the building blocks of society. It's one of the building blocks of actually having any any uh, community. So if you if you look at it from this perspective, you know Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has so many verses in the Quran about marriage. There are also verses about divorce and certain rules and details and all that. And a family it begins with marriage. 
when two people get married, a man and a woman, when they get married, uh, they're going to now constitute an immediate family system. And they're going to have children and there's so many regulations about children and it talks about the respect for parents it talks about the rights and responsibilities of children it talks about so many different aspects so that's how a family is actually created and then you know if somebody in the family passes away there are rules about in inheritance and what's going to happen in terms of burial and things like that so there's just so much uh you know emphasis on details about a family which gives us the idea and the implication that family is extremely important and one of the maybe one of the wisdoms behind why it's important is because we have a sense of obligation responsibility care and concern for family more than we would for someone who's living further away so if you look for example at the verses about uh financial responsibilities or charity for example when you're giving charity to someone anyone who's in need we should Ideally, we should have an equal amount of care and concern for every single person, regardless of how far they are physically or how far they are in terms of the bloodline. But human beings are not like that. Human beings are naturally going to have, uh, you know, someone who lives closer to you, somebody is closer to you because you see them on a regular basis, you're naturally going to have a, a stronger affinity towards them. So even if you look at when it comes to charity, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if your family is in need, you start with your family first. And then who comes afterwards? It's your neighbors, the people who are next to you. And then it comes to your distant neighbors, you know, coming afterwards. So basically by, by doing this, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created a system, a family system where if everyone wants to put extra emphasis on care, concern, taking care of one another, looking out for the best, the family is always going to start as a priority because you guys exist together. You guys live close to each other because you guys are related by blood. So that's kind of like the concept of family in terms of, you know, other verses about it. And that's kind of the concept of family in terms of the philosophical basis behind why family is so important, especially in an age where people are not understanding the value of family. Everyone is looked at as an individual unit, and then those individual units make up a society. But actually, those individual units make up a, a social unit known as the family, the family system. And then those families make up society. And that actually helps regulate for a much better, healthier, stronger, functional society. So, you know, there are these, it's a prescriptive uh, means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us. And it, it it's to this greater, um, it feeds to this greater purpose uh, for all of us. And so when, as parents raising uh, children, how do we nurture this within them and this understanding uh, as we as we parent our children? Well, you know, in many traditional societies, it kind of used to be innate, where everyone generally understands the value of family because you grow up around, you know, grandparents and uncles and aunts, and they're all being nice to you and they're caring for you and they're giving you sweets and all sorts of things, and you're just feeling all that love you automatically naturally just have this idea of reciprocation. There didn't need to be as much corrective action, you know, but I think what you're asking now is specifically in an environment where maybe that doesn't exist, uh, particularly in many places in Western society where the family is disintegrating, family structure is kind of collapsing and falling apart. Well, how do we instill that? Well, you know, the first 
part is to make sure that we as family members, you know, we're, we're, we're somebody's brother or sister or mother or father or, or uncle or aunt or whatever it is. The first thing is we need to make sure that we're being the best family members that we can be. You know, if we're, if we're very good to our families, we're very loving, we're very caring, we're always, we're there for them whenever they need it, uh, we're there to support them and all that, it's going to kind of bring those innate qualities that people used to generally have in a society when people see it, when you see that, when you see, uh, you know, people walking the talk, right? And in addition to that, you know, when there's a sense of confusion and people are not sure about, hey, well, what should the role of family be? And to what extent should I be really nice to my parents? And my parents are supposed to be nice to me and all of those things. That's where we have the Quran and Sunnah, right? And but what we need to do is I think we need to go back and we need to put some emphasis on, on verses. And we need to tell people, look what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying. You know, we got to teach our children and say, look, there is... Uh, a sense of showing respect to parents. It's so important to show respect to parents that it was mentioned right after, uh, right after uh, the the part of the verse which talks about only worship Allah, do not worship anyone else. And then be excellent to your parents, right? So I think going through the verses, going through the uh, hadith, going through the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings be upon him, is is a foundation for anyone who is confused or is seeing something else in school or in their society or around. And this is going to help to serve as a corrective and say, this is what it's supposed to be, even if you don't see that happening. Right. And of course, I'll just, I'll just throw out one note of caution here. You know, sometimes people, unfortunately, you know, Muslims can sometimes use the Quran or the Sunnah as like a weapon. Right? And it's not supposed to be a weapon. So, you know, if your parents, if your children are disrespecting you, you go, you have to respect me because there's a verse of the Quran. And it's like the only verse of Quran that maybe you know. It's like the only one you've ever quoted, you know, in any capacity whatsoever. And then children will do the same thing. So, you know, you're supposed to you know, save me from the hellfire. Allah says, fusakum nara. you were supposed to be better for me and all that. So we're not, we're not supposed to use the Quran and the Hadith as like weapons so that we can go and say, you must do such and such thing. This is my right. I think we need to really structure it in a, in a pedagogical, instructional manner with love and care and say, look, these are the beautiful teachings of our religion. It should not be mentioned only in the context of a fight or when you're losing your rights, you know, or you want, you're demanding your you know, responsibilities or something like that. We should set that framework. We should make this part of every single, you know, Sunday school or Saturday school or Islamic school curriculum. We should make this part of every single family when they sit down and they pray together, whichever prayer they're praying at home. After the prayer, they sit down and say, okay, let's read, you know, let's let's reflect on one verse from the Quran. Let's reflect on one hadith. And we come up with the hadith and we talk about beauty of the family system and how it should be and how the Prophet ﷺ was with his family and uh, how other Muslims have been. This is going to instill, you know, a love and a care, a concern and a foundation and a worldview, which I think people are badly in need of today. Brother Khaled, I don't know if you uh, have can, any questions. Can you hear me? Yes, can I can hear you. Hear you? Yes. I just want to like uh, uh, add just another uh, dimension in terms of from uh, an objective or a Muqassidi uh, uh, perspective, like the overall objective of the uh, family for, uh, for 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 everyone. Uh, so so the the 
at, at, at one level, the family serves as a, as a unit that actually preserves and protects society. So it is a unit that has responsibilities within each other and to, uh, to others as well. It is one of, the, as the Sheikh mentioned, one of the building blocks of uh, society, but it also serves in the, uh, a, a, protective, a protective lens. But it also has a proactive role as well, and that is a role as a family unit to contribute to the Imar, to contribute of the development and improvement of uh, societies and communities and and uh, at, at, at another level also the family serves as a way to preserve humanity in general so that family in that sense that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has protected uh, through the Quran and the Sunnah also maintains and guarantees even the reasons for the continuation continuity of this race so that's really also another uh, important dimension where that kind of relationship is maintained and this takes me to uh, Another point that I would like to share and ask Sheikh Mustafa to reflect on, uh, uh, because the, the, within this pluralistic society that we live, we, live, we live within, we're entitled to live and practice our own lifestyle as Muslims and, and preserve it and protect it, and others are living other lifestyles. In, in this uh, diverse uh, pluralistic context, uh, the concept of family is also uh, over, overlaps with other notions that uh, organize uh, sexual relationships and sexual access. So it, there is no, the line has become very, very vague between these, uh, the way the current modern societies organize uh, relationships and, and, and units beyond, uh, beyond the individuals. Uh, however, Islam was extremely prescriptive in basically uh, uh, maintaining and keeping the sexual relationship and sexual access within the bounds of uh, the Islamic marriage, uh, and everything outside was not was not allowed. Not only this, but even Islam prohibited and made difficult even the steps that leads to illicit relationships, such as lower, such as gazing or following or khulwa and all of these, all of these uh, uh, other aspects. How can you reflect on this, and how can we actually like maintain this when everything around us? Uh, uh, drives it and, and protect our children in a way where everything around them is drive them in a different direction when it comes to sexual relationships. Right. Yeah, Jazakumullah khairan for that reflection. You know, that's really when it comes down to family, the preservation of family through the institution of marriage is uh, something which is, you know, rapidly on the decline. And uh, even the redefinition of what marriage is and what a family is something that's you know very concerning for anyone who values a family system or a family structure so you know what what one of the things that you know you were alluding to is the regulations that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in place you know uh, islam does not allow any type of physical romantic sexual relationship outside the boundaries of marriage and the the reason for that is the preservation of the family right so uh, what it did was it says look you have to engage in a marriage contract before you can have any type of romantic or physical relationship with somebody else. So what is a marriage contract? Well, the difference between, you know, if you ever do like a nikah, if you ever attend a nikah contract, it can be pretty short sometimes. In fact, you know, sometimes people have showed up very late and I said, you're going to get the short version. They said, no problem. Give us the short, short version. We're done in like 45 seconds. You know, it's like shortest nikah contract ever. But having a relationship prior to that is zina 
it's uh, it's fornication or you know or adultery, whichever word you want to translate it as. And right afterwards, one minute later, now it's not only halal; it's an act of ibadah. It's a worship, an act of worship. You're getting reward for that. So it's important to reflect on the philosophy behind that. So what's the what's the reason for that? Is because the marriage contract indicates a level of commitment. It indicates a level of dedication to this marriage. That this, this relationship was not going to be a flyby thing. This is something I'm going to take very seriously because I believe that a family is a serious thing. It's not something you quickly simply break up, break apart. And any children that result from this relationship as well. I'm going to take my responsibilities towards them and uh, we're going to take it very seriously. So that's why, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put this institution of marriage there and kind of like you were hinting at, he put regulations of making sure that you don't even come close to fornication or zina or anything like that in terms of the appropriate guidelines of even gender interactions. So when you have uh, what they call today heteronormativity, when you have, you know, a man attracted to a woman or women attracted to a man, there's certain guidelines, you know, they call them the three P's, you know, when you're when you're even having a conversation, when you're talking up to someone, even if you're talking to a prospective spouse, you know, it, that conversation should be purposeful, that conversation should be uh, professional, and that conversation and that interaction, it should be public. Right. And then the fourth piece some people add is there should be no physical touch. You know, so there's technically four piece. You follow these four piece and these are the guidelines to ensure that you don't even take one step. Do not even come close towards fornication or adultery or, or engaging in something like this. So what, what we need to teach our children when they're going to school, you know, especially if they're going to public school and they're seeing people have boyfriends and girlfriends and. Uh, all sorts of you know other things going on even at the fifth grade level third grade level seventh grade level just all over the place um it we need to teach them about the importance of family to teach them about the importance of commitment in a relationship and we need to teach them also to control their desires and to learn that you know there's certain things you're not supposed to look at there's certain type of appropriate behavior and this is you know one of the challenges that many people are facing is that there's a there's temptation around us everywhere. Uh, the age, the average age of marriage is on the increase. It's getting later and later. I'm not sure exactly Canadian statistics, but in America, the average man is 33 and the average female is 29 for first marriage. So the marriage gets later and later and uh, Muslims cannot have a relationship prior to that. And there's temptation all around them. So it's, it's important to stress both points simultaneously. One of them is the importance of family and maintaining the family. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put some regulations in place. And then the other one is the importance of controlling your, your desires, right? And how that can be potentially harmful for you. So I think it's important to reflect on these things. Khair. I I want to move in what you just uh, said, Sheikh Mustafa, about, you know, relationships and uh, desires and emotions. Um, and how this can actually impact our aqidah. Uh, and what I mean by this is that uh, when we live, you know, in a in a space where emotions and being driven by desires and emotions are are are, um, are natural or, or are validated uh, within a Muslim family. 
as you were saying, it's it's really about coming back to our core texts and uh, looking at it in terms of every action, action being an act of worship. But when you have to raise your children now and actually uh, have these conversations about why that comes before responding to your desires and uh, and your belief system you know it, it really kind of shakes some of your uh, belief systems your view of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, how you decide to make wrong or right actions your path towards self-correction H- how do you nurture a child or a youth to navigate all of this well I think like you mentioned you know aqidah just the, the idea of beliefs and firm belief in Allah and firm belief in Islam is is the core foundation for all of this so when we come back down to Muslim or just the word Muslim itself we need to go back to its origin you know Muslim has just simply become like Muslim with the capital M you know signifies an identity a marker you know people just take a checkbox because my, you know, because I go for Juma with my parents, and because I celebrate Eid, therefore I'm a Muslim. Sometimes many people take it for granted, but if we take the M and we make it a lowercase M, as one scholar was mentioning, you know, one time, so if you go back to the origin of the word, right, and it's not just an identity marker. Muslim means somebody who surrenders and submits themselves to Allah. And the word Islam comes from the same root, means surrender or submission. So when you surrender yourself to Allah, it means that you have desires. Allah created you with certain desires that are going to be good for you and certain desires that are going to be bad for you when they're not kept in check, right? So um, your job as a Muslim is to surrender those desires to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us is a healthy and good and proper manifestation of those desires. So that our desires should not identify us. So if we live in an environment where people are saying, what you do what you feel like, and if you feel like doing something, or you feel like you are something, or you feel like you want something, then you cannot be an authentic and true person unless you do that. You do what your heart desires and what your heart feels. And Islam is the exact opposite of that. Islam says, no, you're not, you, you know, you can be a truly authentic person when you realize that you're a servant of Allah, right? We are ibadullah. We are the servants of Allah. We've been created and we have a purpose. And our purpose is not to simply fulfill our desires. In fact, philosophers of the past, they used to say, you know, the main difference between uh, animals and human beings that the animals just follow their desires because that's what they do. They don't have any other purpose besides that. They just go and they eat and they drink and they be merry in their own little way. But here we have something completely different. So what we need to do is, first of all, have this foundation that we are servants of Allah. We surrender our desires to Allah. Uh, Some of those desires are for our own good. Allah has created the desire for Imam al-Ghazali, one of the great scholars of Islam, he reflects on this in his magnum opus, Ihya Ulam al-Din. So that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created desires in us like uh, the desire for food. If we didn't have that, we wouldn't eat and we'd, our body would we'd die. We, if we didn't have the desire for drink, we wouldn't drink. If we didn't have some level of honor or even anger, he says, at some level, somebody insults you or insults your family or some of that, and you simply have no feeling whatsoever, you you wouldn't try to stop any type of injustice. You wouldn't have any sense of honor whatsoever. But he's saying when these desires get unbalanced and they go out of control, and some desires 
you know, tend to move in that direction when they're unchecked and they're not properly balanced, that manifestation of those desires is what's destructive. It's destructive to the individual and it's destructive to the society. So I think on the one hand, it's important to teach children and teach all people that Islam is about surrendering ourselves to Allah, knowing that we know Allah knows what's best for us. Allah is not testing us just for no random reason, like, you know, don't eat that apple just because. No, there's a reason. There's the reason why we don't eat pork and the reason why we don't engage in illicit relationships. There's always a hikmah and a wisdom that it's actually for our own good. Sometimes we can see it. Like in the case of alcohol, you know, it's pretty clear. Even even non-Muslims look and they admire and say, mashallah, these Muslims, you're not going to have any, you know, date rapes under alcohol. You're not going to have DUIs, you know, if they're following their religion because they understand the harms of alcohol, right? So people who reflect and they just understand these things, they understand the harms of interest. They understand the harms of gambling. When we reflect on the harms of illicit relationships, we realize the harm that it does to the family structure. And when the family gets harmed, the entire society gets harmed. So that's, it's really important to uh, impart this to our children that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prescribed a certain way of living. He's given us certain prohibitions and there's an underlying wisdom behind those prohibitions. Some of them we can see super clearly. Some of them we can just get kind of hints at it and the more we reflect, we kind of realize, yeah, yeah, I can kind of see the wisdom behind that. But we know that Allah has done things, you know, not just haphazardly, He's doing it for our own good. Sheikh Mustafa, you, you made things uh, simple and clear, but uh, some of the audience who might be watching might uh, ask themselves, okay, we, we still did not uh, hear much about the subject of homosexuality and gender identity. However, I think uh, the beginning, and uh, if I summarize what we did so far, is uh, as simple as that the, the, that the Islamic uh, worldview or the Islamic religion, basically, that we uh, follow, uh, uh, confines the religion, every uh, confines everything within the bounds of a Muslim family or Islamic marriage. Everything, every relationship outside this, is not uh, is not acceptable in any shape in any shape or form. So that's uh, that basically makes it a very clear cut uh, relationship. However, uh, people would still uh, we still find that uh, some of the parents are really behind the discourse that many of our children in public school engage in or the impacts that our children uh, and students face in, in in different contexts outside the outside or even sometimes within within the muslim community and uh, and uh, and because of this pluralistic society and this uh, uh, these different ideas and different uh, uh, lifestyles uh, our our kids come back home uh, uh, impacted and uh, uh, face different types of uh, challenges. Uh, I want to begin with the intellectual, uh, intellectual hypo- sometimes hypothetical or sometimes things that uh, that children think about, or or even or, and adults, and uh, and they engage in some of these arguments. And some of these arguments, as Sister Mamuna mentioned, also touch upon or might have an impact on people's uh, on on our children's belief belief system. So a similar example of these, uh, like a core question that people might ask uh, or students might ask that touches upon aqidah uh, and is impacted by the discourse around homosexuality and, 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 and fluid gender identity, that is, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created, uh, assuming uh, with the assumption that, uh, uh, coming in with an assumption that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created people in this particular way, shape or form, then why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not 
give them a way or access or uh, uh, makes it unacceptable uh, to live with this lifestyle within the Muslim uh, uh, within the Muslim uh, family or the Muslim uh, society. Yeah, well, the first thing, you know, I want to point out is that, you know, when people are experiencing feelings of same-sex attraction or they're experiencing feelings of gender identity disorder and they say, I don't feel like I'm a man, I feel like I'm a woman, or a woman says, I don't feel like I'm any gender, you know, I think I'm, uh, you know, non-binary or whatever it may be. The, the first thing is these are these are feelings. Now, the idea that say, well, how did these feelings develop? Did they develop or people were, were born with them, right? Islam, from an Islamic perspective, this question is not so important. But at the same time, it is important to understand that if you look at the modern day research of what professional psychologists, you know, biologists, all the doctors, everyone is saying, they're saying we don't understand why people have these feelings. We simply don't know. Is there proof? Because in the 1990s, there was research that came out from Dean Hamer saying that there's a gay gene and the people are born like this. And so many songs came out, Lady Gaga saying, you know, born this way and all, all things like that. But first of all, that's not even a strong premise. But I think like what you're saying, let's let's just assume that is the case. Let's assume tomorrow research somehow comes out and says, yes, this is the way that uh, some people simply are. They're, they're just simply born this way and we've discovered a gene or whatever it is, which is not the case, but let's assume it is. From an Islamic perspective, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to test people in different ways, right? So some people, they have a natural inclination towards drinking alcohol, towards alcoholism. They say they're predisposed. So they say if your your father your grandfather and your great-grandfather, if they were all alcoholics, and then you're born to them, you ha automatically are going to have this predisposition towards alcoholism, right? And you say, okay, we, we understand that that's, that's your specific test in life. And does that mean that drinking alcohol is going to be okay? Like there's nothing wrong with it, and they we're going to make an exception for you. And you say, you know what, because you're a little bit more predisposed, you know, in some capacity than other people, then, you know, we should make an exception for you. And everyone will, in every, the average Muslim would be like, well, no, you know, it's uh, obviously not because alcohol is harmful, because alcohol is bad. Even if you were born predisposed with a little bit more tendency towards something like that, you say, no, we wouldn't do something like that. Then the question will follow and say, but why did Allah do that? You know, is it, isn't that unfair? Why is it that uh, someone is going to have a stronger inclination towards alcohol than this other person? This other person, you know, smells wine and runs away. And me, I'm somehow naturally attracted to it. So where's the, where's the justice or where's the fairness in that? And the answer is, is in two parts. Number one, Allah is going to hold people accountable for what's in their capacity. And if they have a stronger inclination towards a certain type of vice and Allah created that within them, then Allah is not going to judge them at the same level if they're making some slips or they're, you know, you know, making some attempts or whatever it may be. Allah judge, judges people according to his capacity. So that's number one in terms of fairness. You know, some people, they say they're simply, they're born with a shorter temper. You know, some people just get angry more, you know. Some people, you can just talk to them and say whatever you want, and they just don't get mad. They just, they're just, it doesn't affaze them at all. And you say, well, you know, what? how is that fair? That's just naturally built in. Their temper happened when they were a kid. Can we prove that they were just born that way? That's just their personality. You know, some parents probably noticed this with their own kids. Some of them have one temperament. Someone else has another temperament. 
So what's going to happen is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is fair and he's just and he's going to judge people according to the capacity that they have. So there's going to be a little bit more leeway and someone who kind of loses their temper once in a while if they're more prone to that versus somebody who's less prone to that because the temptation is greater. And on the flip side, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests somebody with one thing, he's going to be testing them with something else. He's either going to give them some blessings here and then he's going to offset some of those blessings with some other type of temptations. So there's going to be somebody who's blessed with lots of wealth, and that's a test in and of itself. But you know, lack of wealth, struggling, you know, to make ends meet—that's a—that's a—that's a test in and of itself. That's a whole test too. But on the flip side, they may be a very sociable, very popular person, so they got a lot of friends or something like that. Then you have someone who's very wealthy; they have so much money. But they're complete introvert in their personality. They have no friends. They their their struggles become more mental rather than physical. The other person's struggles are physical rather than mental. So when you look at all the variables and all the tests that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala puts our way, it balances out because we know that Allah is fair. Sometimes we may not be able to see all those variables, but we know we can see in the lives of several people that some people go through this test, some people go through that test, some people go through a completely different test. Allah is going to test people in different ways, even if he's created some people with a propensity towards something. It doesn't mean that it's a justification that it's not harmful if they manifest those desires that Allah is testing them. Mustafa, and I want to just add a, a few a few points to this, uh, uh, this argument. So even on the argument of uh, struggling and testing, uh, uh, Islam, in, in in principle, does not condone sinful ideas and uh, 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 practices. So, so, so even if you have these ideas towards alcoholism or theft or uh, illicit relationships and all of these things, it is still not approved. It is still in the framework where you should resist and attempt to change, as you as you have uh, uh, clearly explained. Another thing is also with regards to the assumptions, uh, and I think it's also important to 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 clarify that we as Muslims think about things in the uh, from based uh, standpoint, and that's what the, our Islamic worldview teaches us. So we actually start from the opposite prem, from the premise that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is the most just, and then we work it backwards, and then we work it towards. Okay, then, as we believe deeply inside us in the justice and mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then there is a path that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created for me that allows me to be on his right path. Allah has given that choice of walking on the right path to everybody. And then finally, if we go into the scientific argument, until this point, and one of the recent uh, research pieces by uh, one of the biggest studies in MIT in 2019, yeah, also, uh, the conclusion was that there is no conclusive idea of what is considered, what is what was uh, suggested as the gay gene. So, uh, even then, scientifically, there is no clear uh, uh, proof of that assumption. It is still an assumption in this way. So, if you put an assumption versus your core strong belief, then you should follow that strong belief about these assumptions and about your choices and uh, and uh, way of life we take it uh, we take you to the more uh, difficult uh, questions that uh, the, the 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 students and children 
impacted by identity discourse in the schools. People identify this way or identify that way. And these are very strong feelings that some people sometimes possess. This is how I feel. This is how I, I see things. So what would the parents' response to these kind of things? This is, they, they sit with individuals or accounts of individuals who strongly feel about a particular identity. And here we're talking about a specific opposite gender identity or other or, uh, or, uh, or or another what what the reaction what should the reaction be sure yeah let's, let's identify some terms uh, so you know one of the most common terms that's being used is what's called transgenderism or someone who is labeled as transgender which basically they they think that uh, they're going to adjust and change their gender from you know male to female either that's going to be done by saying uh, i'm changing my name from you know mustafa to aisha or I'm changing my pronoun from he, him to, you know, she, her, or I'm actually going to get uh, the opposite sex hormones injected into me, or I'm going to start dressing like a female or, uh, or, and, or I'm going to actually get gender reassignment surgery where I cut off the parts that normally identify me according to my biological sex. And I'm going to get some surgery done to look like the other gender, right? So this will be called a transgenderism. And sometimes it's also referred to as gender nonconformity. So this idea uh, and is, is something that's extremely prevalent and it's very common. It's, it's becoming more and more common and more and more accepted and even pushed in many schools, uh, particularly in the West. So yeah, how do, how do we deal with that, right? So the first thing is we need to understand is that there's the, 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 the scientific term or the psychological term for this is called gender dysphoria. This is known as this is in the DSM-5 or the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders version 5. It was a DSM-4. I don't know if it's the same in Canada, but it was in America. The DSM-4, they, they called it gender identity disorder, right? So they made a little modification in the terminology. Both of them are used. What that basically means is if you just look at the wording, gender identity disorder, it's a, it means that somebody is uh, confused about what their gender actually is. So they have a biological sex and Islamically biological sex and, you know, gender is pretty much the same thing. But here now they're saying, nope, the biological sex is how you are physically. The gender is in your mind and whatever gender is in your mind, whatever you feel that you are, regardless of anything that's there on the outside, you're 100% outside male. Your chromosomes inside of your cells are male but you feel like a female, then you go ahead and you start dressing like a female and you go ahead and you start identifying as a female and all that. So, so the question is, well, why is that happening? Uh, well, it's actually still until today, it's listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders as a mental disorder, right? But it's not treated as a mental disorder. Long story, you know, about insurance reasons and you want them to pay for the surgeries and all that stuff. But the key here is, why, why do, do people genuinely feel that way or are they pretending? Well, you know what? There's two types of people. And you're going to find this particularly among young adolescents in, in schools. There's a type of person who thinks, hey, this is just really cool. I would like to, you know, dress like the opposite gender. I'd like to identify with some, you know, multi, uh, plural pronoun. You're going to call me they. You cannot call me he. You cannot call me she. It's just something cool to do. I'm going to invent my own pronoun called tree or Z or whatever. And you have to, you know, identify that, you know, have to call me that there. There's a significant number of people, particularly younger people 
who experience what they call gender nonconformity, they want to not conform with their gender because it's just cool. They feel special. They get attention that way. Um, they want to show solidarity with you know some movement or whatever it is. And what's what's interesting is research shows that the majority of those people in their younger age that automatically sorts itself out and they they go back to whatever their original gender biological sex was then there's another category of people who actually have what's called gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder they truly they genuinely believe in their mind that they are a different gender that you know that they're they're a woman trapped inside of a man's body so it's very important for us as muslims to not deny that this is what they're feeling Right? This is what their experience is. Okay, So we, we believe you. We, when, you, when you say that, you know what, you're willing to get, go through a surgery, you're willing to go under the knife and chop off parts of your body, we believe that that's what you're feeling. At the same time, that doesn't change the reality around us. Right, That doesn't mean that because you feel that way or if there's you know, 8 billion people in the world and there's a few thousand people who are feeling that way, then all of a sudden we're going to change what everyone else in the entire world thinks about what's really happening, right? So if somebody believes genuinely in their mind, they're really convinced that it's raining outside, but it's not raining outside, right? What's supposed to happen? Are you supposed to tell that person to make them feel better? Say, you know what? We're all going to validate your claim that it is raining outside objectively. Or do we say, you know what? We understand you're going through it. You know, we understand that you believe this. We're not saying that you're lying. Right. At the same time, though, we got to assert the reality for you that it's actually not raining outside. I know you feel that way and I know it's difficult, you know, for you to, you know, to understand that, hey, how could this be happening? You know, how, how could I be feeling this? way? I'm so convinced that this is true. Say, so, you know what? I understand that's a, that's a struggle. But if we were to validate that, if we were to change the entire reality of 99.99% of all people in the world and the objective reality that we believe is, you know, come from Allah, the way Allah created things, then we would not be doing a service to you. We'd be doing a disservice to you and to the entire humanity. It's going to be extremely harmful to humanity. So if somebody tries to re-identify as an animal and they say, I'm actually a cat trapped inside of a human body, it's not helping them. And by the way, this happens in America too. I mean, it's happening in Canada too. There was an incident where uh, a girl wanted a, a litter box installed inside the bathroom because she identifies as a cat and she meows when her teacher, you know, calls on her. So what's the solution? Is the solution to say, yes, we want to cater to your feelings. So we're going to install a litter box and we're all going to identify you as a cat. Or are we going to say, no, we're not going to change reality because of what you're feeling. Well, we understand what you're going through, right? And we try to help you in some other way, right? And and that's really what it comes down to, what Islam is saying. And that's what any, um, you know, any anyone who's really concerned about the health of society, that's what they should be doing. So that's what Muslim parents should be looking at it from this perspective and saying, yeah, you know what? We don't want to negate what somebody's feeling. Whatever they feel, they feel. It's fine. But it's not helpful. It's not good for them. It's not good for society. It's not good for family. It's not good for anybody for us to validate the reality and say this is the reality of the world we can validate your feelings and say yes you feel that way i get it but we're not going to change the reality of the world based upon that you dealt with that with the difficult identity question in in a, in a, in a, in a very good way and uh, we want to wrap this uh, with a question related to 
uh, okay, so this is how we understand, this is how we live our lives as Muslim, this is how we believe in our Islamic lifestyle, but we are in a society where everybody has the right to do also whatever they want. How do we define and encourage our relationships with the other, whatever that choice of the other is? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even gave the ultimate choice of even people have the choice to believe or disbelieve in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So even other choices are made available to human beings and, and that basically is the choice of being Muslim or uh, uh, or uh, or not. Uh, however, what guides your relationship with others uh, and what advice uh, parents can give their children in terms of dealing with people who've made different uh, choices, either from within the community or from outside the community? Sure. So, I mean, we live in a pluralistic society, right? So we're going to have people around us who who differ radically, you know, from our views and from our beliefs. Well, when it comes to the idea of sexuality or when it comes to the idea of gender it's going to be you know we're, we're concerned that it's going to affect our family someone is doing this on their private individual level whatever they're doing we say you know what okay you know this is the way you want to live your life assuming that it doesn't affect me alhamdulillah no worries you do whatever you want you're free to believe whatever you want if you want to believe that you're a different gender you go ahead and believe that you're a different gender you want to believe that you are non-human you can believe that you want to believe that you're neither male nor female and that there's 72 or 99 different types of genders you can believe that if you want to believe that uh, manifesting your uh, uh, sexual attraction towards the same uh, gender or the same sex is uh, how you want to live your life or you want to manifest it towards uh, you know towards animals or towards whatever towards members of your very close family members with incest you, what, whatever you're doing on an individual level, if it doesn't affect me, do whatever you want. The problem, the challenge is going to be when it starts to affect you, when it starts to affect us, when it starts to affect us as a community and as a society. So that's where we need to say, basically, look, you know, you're free to hold your opinion. You're free to you're free to believe what you want about Prophet Isa, salam, about about Jesus or about God or about or about Islam or about anything. You can have all those beliefs and you can practice you know whatever you want to do however you want to do it the only thing is we need to somehow make compromises when there's an overlap and these things are affecting us so when my practice is going to affect you like for example we don't you know in many societies we don't call the adhan out loud you know in cities especially for fajr because most people are sleeping and if we did it would wake up all the neighbors around us who are like you know well well we want to we, we would love to have the adhan called you know to wake us up in, with our local masjid but we're not going to do that because that's going to affect you so likewise if someone's saying you know what i'm i believe that gender is fluid and you can change it however you want and there's so many different genders the problem is now if you're going to come and you're going to say you must also believe the same thing you must accept it and we're going to teach your children to believe that and we're going to make sure that it becomes part of the kindergarten curriculum in every single school that when they come, we're going to make sure that they are being exposed to this. So it becomes completely normalized so that when they grow up, they're going to have our ideology and our mentality. And we're going to brainwash them into that. That's where we got to say, well, wait a minute now. This is starting to affect us. We don't have any problem if it's not affecting us. But now you're saying that it's going to affect us when it comes to our school system. Now you're saying that when we go to work. I must identify you according to the pronoun or the label that you've chosen for yourself. So now it's 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 not only, you know, I am fine with you having whatever beliefs you want, but now you want 
to assert your beliefs over me and you want me to re-identify you according to such and such pronoun that you've chosen for yourself, which I don't believe is a reality. So that's really where the conflict comes. So I think, it, you know, the, 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 what we need to teach people is, look, we respect people as human beings. Regardless of what they're doing, they're still people. They're all created from Adam and Hawa. They're all part of the human race. They all have certain, you know, rights. Uh, they all have certain decent level of respect. This is what our religion and what Islam teaches us. At the same time, though, when someone is trying to pressure us to be influenced or pressure us to adopt our worldview, you know, modify our worldview to come in line with your worldview, that's where we need to basically say, no, we're going to put up a barrier. We're going to put up a fight and we're going to say this is not fair. Because we're telling you you're free to believe what you want. We should be free to believe what we want. You shouldn't be allowed to uh, propagate your beliefs to us on a regular basis, which has almost become like a religious ideology, uh, and, and to our children and all of that stuff. So we should respect people on the basis of human beings. We want to have a pluralistic society. And a pluralistic society means you get to believe what you want and, and in your own individual realm do what you want. And I should be able to believe what I want and I should be able to do what I want if that's using biological sex-based gender pronouns, then that's asserting my worldview and that's asserting my reality. If that's teaching my children or at least knowing what books are going to be in the library and what's going to be taught and I decide to opt out of those classes because my children are in public school at whatever grade that is, I should have the right to do that because I'm their parents. I give birth to them and I'm funding them and I'm giving them tarbiyah and education and upbringing and all that stuff so they don't simply just belong to the state. Uh, so, you know, that's, we need to have this balance between the respect and between also respect for ourselves and saying freedom, fr you know, freedom and respect goes both ways. And on this issue, sometimes it seems to be tilting, uh, against, uh, the Muslim community and anyone else who doesn't agree with the ideology. Uh, you want to, uh, uh, basically, reiterate uh, that this discussion is entirely within the premise of what we as Muslims believe in and what we as Muslims believe and teach our children and uh, uh, maintain within uh, within our community, for our community, for whoever believes in this understanding of Islam and this uh, uh, choice of a lifestyle. And that by uh, and that's the that's the way we 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 would like to maintain and preserve and uh, uh, pass on this uh, legacy and this uh, heritage and this religion and this lifestyle to uh, to our children. And at the same time, as we we interact with everybody else in, in society, we are aware of the boundaries of understanding people's rights to choose, people's rights to uh, do whatever they want uh, within the boundaries of law. And at the same time, uh, our religion also teaches us in dealing with the other that there is no justification for uh, 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 violence or uh, uh, aggression uh, when it comes to differences in opinion, when it comes to uh, uh, people making different uh, different choices, particularly at, uh, at, uh, at the individual level. And we also, as you said, maintain the right to demand our respect for our choices and for our lifestyle and uh, uh, for our religion. And we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, protect us and protect our children children and make us among those who do not compromise 
uh, in this religion, uh, but in fact actually promote this lifestyle that is a religion that has benefit, inshallah, for every for everybody and for the entire humanity. Jazakumullah khairan, Sheikh Mustafa, and I will pass it on to Sister Maimoun. Jazakumullah khair, Sheikh Mustafa, for walking us through to really understand and unpack a lot of these important things uh, for ourselves in a family and for our children. I want to remind everybody that uh, you're just uh, catching the end part, but this, if you are just catching the end part, that this is going to be available um, and the, the podcast is also available. And this is with Sheikh Mustafa Omar, who is the founder and president of California Islamic University. He's the director of education and outreach at the Islamic Institute of Orange County and he's an executive member of the FIC Council of North America and alhamdulillah we've been blessed to have this conversation with him tonight. We will continue these conversations on the institution of family in Islam uh, as a part of our series and uh, we also want to remind you again that uh, for anybody that is looking to make donations uh, for the earthquake earthquake that uh, hit earlier this week uh, in Turkey, Lebanon, and Syria, that you can do so by going on our website at macnet.ca forward slash earthquake. And with that, we will close tonight's episode and I will ask, invite Sheikh Omar if uh, you are able to do a closing dua for us tonight. Sure. Allahumma anta salamu minka salam. Tabarakta rabbana yadhul jilalu alikram. Allah... Help us to understand the wisdom in your commands and prohibitions and the guidance that you've given us that's for our own betterment. Wallah, open our hearts and minds to understand truly uh, what the teachings of Islam truly are. Wallah, help preserve and protect our families and protect our children. Wallah, help us to live in an environment that is safe for them and safe for us to practice. Wallah, open the hearts and minds of people to understand what the true teachings and true message of Islam is so that they can see the beauty within it and they can at least show some respect to it. Ameen. Subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifun wa salamun ala al-mursaleen wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alam. Islam in Life is an online production by the Muslim Association of Canada.